0: Colossians 2, uh, starting at verse 1. I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who have never met me personally. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For, though I am far away from you, my heart is with you. And I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong.
1: And we'll now read our second passage to us. Thanks, Pam.
2: From Colossians chapter 2 again, um, Paul says, And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots go down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth that you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies or high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual power of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority.
1: Thank you, Pam and Sheila, for reading that to us. Uh, as you can see, our scripture passage today is another of Paul's letters from prison. Paul is now separate from the church physically. But he's able to very firmly state his conviction that his heart is with them, with the Christians in Colossae, but other translations put it a different way. They say that Paul is said, confirming that he is with them in spirit. He is really with them. It's a, it's a real union that he has with them. As with all of Paul's letters, this one is firmly centered on Christ. No matter what Paul's condition is, no matter what he's suffering, no matter what is going on in his life, everything is focused very heavily on the person of Jesus. And this letter is no different from that. We ourselves are rather used to the idea of the church as being a physical gathering together of people We often think of the words of Jesus for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Paul, however, is gathered in spirit with the believers in Colossi. To some extent, this has become the experience of our congregation and church since the outbreak of COVID-19. We've all missed the pleasure and the stimulus and the warmth of a physical gathering. We've been challenged to see church as much more than a physical gathering. We've had to explore new inner attitudes and values to appreciate the church in a much larger framework. And it's this this larger framework today that I would like us to consider because the image of the church presented in the New Testament far transcends our consciousness of it as a physical organization. There's a very interesting passage of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 12 which reads as follows... You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels and a joyful gathering. You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven, who have now been made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. What the writer is in fact describing here is the totality of the church, the people and spiritual beings whom God has joined to himself in his own family. As the writer says, we have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We have come to the thousands, the countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. We've come to the assembly of God's firstborn children whose names are written in heaven. We've come to God himself, who is the judge of all things. We've come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven who have now been made perfect. We have come to Jesus. Earlier in the same letter, the writer describes the triumphs and tribulations of God's people in Old Testament times. He then goes on speaking about these same these same people, the same people that have suffered and triumphed. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a large crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Now, it's interesting the writer does not say because we have before us examples of the life of faith so that we can be encouraged. No, he says, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses, and because of this huge crowd, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Now, my understanding of the, of the, what the writer is saying is that the church in glory in heaven actually sees us. We cannot, of course, in this life interact with them. That must wait until we are as they now are. As Hebrews says, we emulate their faithful endurance by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Now, there are some other, other interesting references in the New Testament. For example, in Matthew 18.10, Jesus says, Beware that you don't look down on any of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels are always in the presence of my heavenly Father. And in Luke 15.10, Jesus says, In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. When one sinner enters the kingdom of God, there is rejoicing among the angels. In Revelation 5, 8, we read, And when he, that is the Lamb, took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls, filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Now we do need to be careful not to take that image too far. as in Christ we already have direct access to the Father, as Paul clearly states in Ephesians 3:12. But I personally find this image extremely moving. Our prayers come to the Father while those mysterious beasts and elders are somehow involved. Now I'm not saying that we see the beasts and elders as intermediaries. No, not at all. I believe the point of the image is to stress the unity of the church, where every part has a role as described in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, where every part is concerned for the welfare of every other part. Because sometimes we can see, we can be distracted. When we see the church on the defensive or being knocked about or seeing we see it as something small or weak or irrelevant or ineffective, Or occasionally we even see it on the wrong side of history or what people consider to be the wrong side of history. What I want you to see is that we're not alone in this strife-torn world. We are right now living stones in a bigger and more glorious structure than we can physically see. We belong to the communion of the saints. We belong to all those, the beasts and the elders, the angels, the blessed in heaven, and those still on their pilgrimage in this world. We belong to those that God has chosen for himself. As Paul says in Philippians 3.20, we are citizens now of the new and heavenly Jerusalem, which is described in Revelation. The church is great and glorious because it is God's personal property. Every member, every living stone has been personally chosen by him. The church, we the members of God's family will continue in eternity, precisely because we are of God's household. On this question of significance, we need to remember too that there are no that uh, there are no insignificant members of the church. Each of us has a role, a place, a task, a ministry where God has granted that we are His hands and His voice in this world. We may think of ourselves and we may think of our ministries as being as small and of no great significance. But our ministries are the works of God and in this in this world, and nothing that interests God is insignificant. The very fact that He has chosen to involve Himself to, to, to initiate an activity makes it significant. Now even when we're isolated. Our significance does not diminish because in whatever place we are, we can do God's work. Was Paul reduced to insignificance because he was locked up in prison? Nope. We have the answer to that in the New Testament. Paul still speaks to us today in the Bible, teaching us, encouraging us, comforting us, and challenging us. What else was Paul doing while he, while he was in prison in addition to writing letters to the church? He was praying for the church in Colossians. He says he was agonizing for the church in Colossae. Other epistles state that he is always lifting up before God, uh, the local church, the church universal, the church in whatever region he happens to be writing to. He is always praying for the church. The church was constantly on his mind. Prayer is a significant ministry, which is not in any way confined or limited by our circumstances. By it, we can hear from God, we can intercede for others. Now, there is much need for prayer at the present time. Just look around us. Our own family and friends, the church, local and universal, the church persecuted, the community beset by confusion and dishonesty and distortions, bad and oppressive leaders, international unrest, pandemics, plenty there to be praying about. There are Christians around the world now who need our prayers. Some are being persecuted for their faith. Some are in poverty. Some are in danger. Some are suffering hunger and thirst. Some lack a safe place to live. Some suffer from diseases that are eminently curable, but which the medicines do not exist in their own countries. Now, we can stand with these people in prayer. We perhaps cannot physically rescue them, but we can intercede for them. And in our own church too, we have people who need us. Last week, Mandy Gray shared her vision for how this congregation can support our young people. Now, when we think of young people, we think, oh, we'll leave them, we'll leave them to their own families or to experts. But we can have a role, we can play a role. This is what Mandy is saying, that we in the reflective congregation can play a very valuable role, a very constructive role in the lives of some of these young people. Because we're part of their family. We're part of the family of God. Now, the problems faced by young people today are acute. Social media has created a culture that is in many ways quite toxic, especially for young girls and in the area of sexuality. Through social media, young people can find that their self-identity, their self-esteem, their self-worth, their confidence are frequently subject to attack and white-handing. Now, in our church, Mandy has had young people who have stood up and joined her to lead those younger than themselves. They need our current encouragement and support. Mandy was saying recently to us that she's got girls in year 10 who have stood up to take leadership roles in caring for and guiding children, young people younger than themselves. Now these do these young girls, these young leaders all need encouragement and support can we help? I think we can, and we need to discuss with Mandy individually or as a group ways in which we can help her help them uh, in the future. I'd just like to stop speaking now, and I've got a number of questions there in the in the script that I'd like people to reflect on, and if they have any comments, we'd certainly be very glad to help them because our next meeting in November will be something of a planning meeting. We're going to be looking ahead into 2021 to see what our congregation can be doing, talk about themes that we can be looking at and also looking at how we can improve the way we do things, how we can support one another better in church, how we can improve the quality of our services. But right now, I'd like to just have us reflect on this vision that we've looked at today of the of the glorious church the eternal church the powerful church the not the weak church the struggling church but the powerful church where we are united to christ under uh, under whose authority god has placed all things the father has placed all things so do we find that this vision of the church can inspire us and can it help us to help others especially those who don't see much in the future for themselves. They may not see a future for themselves at all. Can this vision of the church inspire us to help them? Does this vision change our perspective on the world and how we live in it? And more importantly, does this vision of the church help us put worries and fears that we have about this world into an entirely different perspective?